0: We'll be in Acts chapter 2 today. We will begin today this famous sermon, the sermon at Pentecost preached by Peter. We'll be looking at verse 14 through verse 21 today. 14 through 21. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 21. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your grace today. Lord, we ask today that the Holy Spirit would be with us would empower us, both me as the preacher and all of us here as the hearers of your word, that we would hear your word as it is proclaimed to us today, that it would not fall on deaf ears, that it would not fall on hard hearts, but that the Holy Spirit today would go forth both to soften our hearts and to open our ears and to enlighten us to the words of Scripture as we see them here today. Lord, apart from the help of the Spirit, we know that we are at a great loss for understanding your word and so we ask lord that you would empower us that you would strengthen us and that you would take the word that you have given us here in acts chapter 2 and that by the power of the spirit you would work in us a great thing we pray this in jesus name amen my sermon for today is entitled gleanings from a great preacher part one as you may have noticed that in our text today, we've only made it through a portion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It is a, an amazing sermon that Peter delivers here at Pentecost and one that I think is worth taking section by section. And largely what I want us to do over the next probably three weeks or so, as we study this sermon that Peter has given us, uh, I know that, that we could take the whole thing in bulk and, and have a wonderful message and, and great sermon from that as a whole. Uh, But I want to make sure that we do not miss anything that we have given to us here in Acts. And in addition to that, my hope also is, is that not only you as the congregation, but I as your pastor, as your preacher here before you today, would benefit from what we find in the book of Acts. Indeed, what we see here in the book of Acts is a great example of what preaching looks like, of what preaching ought to be. And so, my, my mission over the next few weeks is, in, in essence, to invite you into my own study, to invite you into my own pursuit of what good and right preaching ought to be and ought to look like as we see it here in the book of Acts from this great sermon that Peter, Peter preached at Pentecost. One of the greatest preachers of the previous generation back in the 1900s is a man by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, Perhaps there is none of that generation that is more well known, that was more famous for his preaching than Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. In his book, Preaching and Preachers, kind of his seminal work on preaching, if you take a a preaching class at any reputable seminary or Bible college, you will read this book, Preaching and Preachers, by Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. And uh, in the first chapter of this book, he speaks to the importance and the primacy of preaching. And he says this, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need in the world also. And I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in this statement is correct. And I think his statement in this, in this book is correct. And I think we see it demonstrated by the fact that the very first act that we see after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, how it has been doled out on these 120 members of the church that are here gathered in Jerusalem, what is the very first thing that we see happening? We see sermon, a sermon being preached. Peter standing up, declaring the word of God to the people who are there. So today as we begin looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we see this as the very first sermon ever recorded after the ascension of Christ. The very first sermon ever preached in the church age. This is the very first Christian sermon ever preached. We have instances in the, in the Gospels of Jesus preaching, certainly. Uh, but after his resurrection, this is the very first sermon that we see preached in the Christian age, in the church age. And therefore, we see... In that, the prime place that the Lord has given to preaching. Because as, as the Holy Spirit has been poured out here, as these amazing things have been seen, as the disciples have here been speaking in tongues, and everyone around in Jerusalem is hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. And then as Peter first stands up, these, most, these first words by a Holy Spirit filled, and empowered church matter. And the first thing that Peter does is not stand up and say, okay, I want everyone to break up into small groups. He doesn't say, I want everyone to to take up whatever instrument you know how to play, whether it's the lyre or the harp or whatever it is, and begin worshiping God through song. He does not first call for tithes and offering. He does not call for one-on-one discipleship. All of those things I just mentioned are great things, things that we practice and encourage here at Redeemer Fellowship Church that are a rightful part of Christian worship and Christian exercise and living the Christian life. But of all the things that we do as Christians, of all the things that is expected from the church, what we see first and foremost after the Holy Spirit has come is the preaching of the word of God and his writing on the sermon that Peter gives here in Acts chapter 2, James Montgomery Boyce observes that there are four important qualities of Peter's preaching in this sermon, and I want to take these four qualities, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a, a few of them in different portions of this sermon. We're going to capitalize on a few of them at certain times over, over others, but I want us to consider these four qualities that James Montgomery Boyce points out in this Sermon. He, first of all, points out that Peter's sermon, his preaching here, is expository. He points out that his preaching is Christocentric, that is, it is centered on Christ, focused on Christ. His preaching here is fearless, and his preaching is reasonable. These are the four things that that are emphasized, and I think rightly so, by James Montgomery Boyce. And not that I would... uh, quickly seek to add or or amend or add addendums to things that these great theologians have said. But but I would add also to this that something that is seen not only in Peter's preaching, but in all good preaching that we see is a that it is gospel saturated. I think this is implied in the fact that he says it's Christocentric, for indeed the center of the gospel is Christ, that there is no Christ, there is no gospel. But I still think it It serves us of some value to state it outright that apart from the sermon, the preaching being gospel saturated, that it is not effective preaching. So, especially for me as a preacher, and for all who are in here who who aspire to preaching, and it is a good aspiration, it's good to consider these qualities the qualities of the most famous sermon that has ever been preached by any Christian in history. Certainly this side of Christ, it's good for us as preachers to study this, to read this, and to glean from Peter's sermon what we need as, pe- as preachers, as those who declare God's word. But it is also good for all believers, for all believers to see these qualities and to see the importance of them and to expect them in our churches as well. These things are what we ought to expect from our pastors when they preach in all of our churches and where these things are lacking, the preaching is lacking. And so for me as your pastor here today, my hope is that I will glean from these, these instructive characteristics that we see in, in Peter's sermon, but also that you today will come along with me and benefit from these observations as well. I want us to start as we begin this sermon. We're going to look at these various qualities over the next couple of weeks, but I want us to, to focus on a couple of them today as we first Look at this first section here in acts chapter 2 starting in verse 14 And I want us to consider first and foremost the man himself who is preaching point number one of my of my sermon Which threw ian for a loop when I sent it to him and asked him to put it into the computer Is the foot is removed And I want to explain what I mean by this If you've studied the gospels Then one thing that you might have realized about peter is that he had a knack for one thing in particular And that was putting his foot in his mouth Peter was regularly saying things that we read in Scripture, knowing what we know, right? And we say, how could Peter say such a stupid thing? What were you thinking? It was Peter who told Christ, no, Christ, you're wrong. We would never let that happen to you. Absolutely not. To which Christ responds, get behind me, Satan, to this guy, Peter. It was Peter who, in the upper room after Christ said that if I do not wash you, you have no place in me, says, well, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head also. Wash me all. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, that's, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Certainly it is the same man that we see, sadly, as Jesus is being tried denying Christ three times. This man has a, had a knack throughout the Gospels of putting his foot into his mouth. And we'll be talking a little bit more in the coming weeks about this, but I want to start by observing quickly the fearlessness and boldness of Peter's preaching now. The Peter that we see here in Acts chapter 2, as he is now standing to boldly proclaim the gospel to the Jews that are around, is a radically changed Peter than the one we saw not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, cursing as a young woman accused him of being a disciple of Christ. This is the same guy. What has happened between that instance and this instance, where Peter now stands in the midst of what could likely be considered a hostile crowd and proclaims Christ unashamedly, boldly? And I think you, you know probably part of the answer at least. We certainly can say, well, well, Peter had the privilege of seeing Christ after his ascension, the, the res- or after his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ certainly would have, would have worked a great deal of hope and confidence in Peter, undeniably that is the case. But even more than that, what we can definitively say is true of Peter now that was not true then, is that this man has been filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. So here we see what it is that makes a great preacher more than anything else, and that is that he is empowered of the Holy Spirit. There is no good preaching apart from the Holy Spirit's empowering, apart from the Holy Spirit's work. You can have great speeches, you can have great lectures, you can have great uh, words of encouragement, great pieces of self-help, but apart from the Holy Spirit's empowering, None of that means or has any effect. All of it is moot if the Holy Spirit is not present and working through the sermon preached. There is no such thing as a great preacher who is not also empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see is true of Peter. And what's, I I think, amazing to us and we ought to consider is that this change that has taken place in Peter has taken place in us. That we have, just as these 120 disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit as we talked about last week, each and every one of us today who has trusted in Christ, who has put our faith in Him, who has been regenerated and now believes on His name has the Holy Spirit empowering us as well. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the same boldness and fearlessness with which Peter now preaches can be true of us. This is why the Apostles, as we'll see in a few chapters, the church prays for boldness. You know, there are some requests that we can pray for that the Lord is not only willing, but is happy and pleased to grant us. Boldness is one of those things. A willingness to declare the gospel to those around us is one of those things that God is happy to answer for us and grant us and give us. For it is indeed the very thing he has called the church to do at the End of Matthew. I think what we, we could also see here is, in this boldness with which Peter proclaims, we see a sort of argument for open-air preaching. For indeed, that's what Peter's doing. It is, a, it is a somewhat easy thing, in a sense. It might not sound like it to you, but, but trust me when I say, what I do here on Sunday mornings is relatively easy in comparison to what Peter was doing here in Jerusalem. I come in here on Sunday mornings, and I have the privilege and joy, and certainly it takes effort and it takes work, but I have the privilege to preach to a group of people who have come expecting this, who have come expecting to hear Christ proclaim, who have come expecting to hear of the reality of sin and the joy of the gospel found in Christ Jesus. Did any of you in here come here today expecting me to to sing? I hope not. None of you came in here expecting me to to put on a a juggling show for you, though I can't juggle. You came expecting me to preach and to hopefully preach the gospel faithfully. Peter has now stood up in the midst of a Jewish crowd, a crowd that largely is separated from Christ, does not believe in him, does not trust in him. And indeed, as we saw last week with their accusation of drunkenness, is largely even hostile to the idea of what Christ came and preached. And yet here Peter stands up in the midst of them and preaches the gospel unashamedly. Open air preaching is one of those things. I don't know if you've ever, ever been to some sort of uh, public place or, or event and seen someone standing on a street corner or on a sidewalk with a, maybe with a microphone or a megaphone or, or something and, and preaching the word of God. And if we're honest, doesn't that immediately make us uncomfortable? Immediately we think, oh my goodness, what is that guy saying? Right? And we know that there are bad examples of what this looks like, right? That there are bad examples of what it looks like to to preach in in an open air setting, to stand on on a street corner and proclaim what maybe some consider to be the good news. We've seen bad examples of this. But I think it would be a a shame and and, and wrong for us to let these bad examples cause us to throw out the idea of this open air style of preaching altogether. In fact, I think what we ought to be driven to do is first and foremost, when we see someone boldly proclaiming the word of God on a street corner, on a sidewalk is to immediately pray for them. Immediately pray that the Lord would work through their words, through their preaching, through their speaking. If we find that what they're saying isn't all that good, but maybe pray for that that the lord would save them maybe engage in a little open air of your own and begin dialoguing with them if you find what they say to be to be disgusting to be wrong to be out of bounds but what we see here is a boldness found in holy spirit as he is empo- uh, boldness found in peter as he is empowered by the holy spirit to stand in a place where largely the crowd is not on his side and did not come expecting to hear him say this and yet he boldly proclaims the gospel. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, what he has to say to these Jews is probably not something we would find to be very reasonable, to be very encouraging, to be very kind as he preaches to them. And yet he does so anyway. But I want us also to consider as Peter preaches the expository nature of Peter's preaching. Peter begins with a quick denial of the accusation as we see here is as, as he addresses what was accused of the of the church where people said they are filled with new wine mocking them claiming that they were drunk and Peter stands and, and he has a word against this he says these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day and we hear this and we think well what does the time of day have to do with with being drunk and certainly uh, Peter was making the point it is only nine o'clock and you expect that these 120 people are are now drunk that's that's foolish but peter doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to trying to disprove that i idea he certainly says it's it's wrong but he moves directly into explaining what exactly is going on what exactly the people are seeing here and he does so by taking them to the gospel, to the prophet joel He explains to the crowd that what they are seeing is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel declared in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He says in verse 17 and 18. In the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The point that Peter is making is these men are not drunk. Rather, what is happening is a fulfillment of what the prophet has spoken. He doesn't take them to some argument for, for rationale as far, as far as why they're not drunk and why they're something else. He takes them directly to the word of God and preaches to them from that. Saying what you are seeing in, this, in these men, in these women, is a fulfillment of God's word. The pouring out of the Spirit that was promised in Joel is now happening. And yes, it looks strange. It looks wild. It is amazing. And it's amazing because it is a fulfillment of this prophecy. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out. And he makes all of this point so beautifully, so amazingly by taking his hearers to the Word of God. This is what true and right preaching is. It is expository. John Stott, he was writing about expository preaching and he said this, I think it's very helpful. He says, to expound scripture, that is expository preaching, is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted and unfolds what is tightly packed. So this helps us further understand what true preaching is. It is expository. It is taking the word of God and preaching it, saying this is what the word of God says and this is what the word of God means. This is what preaching rightly and truly is. And it's frankly a kind of preaching that is lacking in many churches. What oftentimes is is found and considered to be preaching is a, a preaching of Here's my opinion. Or here's psychology. And sure, maybe there's some passages that I think can lend some weight to what I'm saying. But largely, here's a way to live your life in the best way possible. Just yesterday I was shown a video of of what childish preaching looks like. And there there are churches. Churches filled with individuals, filled with people who desperately need to hear the gospel. And what we see instead is Childish preaching. Men jumping on couches. Squirting people with water guns. And you know me, church family. If you, have, if you have been around me outside of Sunday morning, outside of the pulpit, you'll know that I enjoy having a good time. I like cutting up. I like water guns. I like jumping on couches. But all of those things have their place, and their place is not in the pulpit. It is not the place of the preacher to entertain It is not the place of the preacher to provide moral encouragement. It is the place of the preacher to take the word of God and explain it in a way that is clear and helpful and true and that magnifies Christ. This is the job of the preacher and it is what we see Peter doing in this sermon. So not only do we see from Peter this kind of boldness that is very refreshing when we uh, when we compare it to other things that we see of Peter earlier in, in the Gospels, we also see in this a clarity of understanding of the Old Testament prophets as he preaches from the book, book of Joel, from the prophet Joel. Point number two, as we get into this prophecy given by Joel that Peter is now expounding, what we see, point number two, is from a prayer to a prophecy to a reality. This Prophecy that is given, and it is, is essentially verbatim from the book of Joel. And this prophecy really is seen earlier on in the Old Testament. It is a reflection of something that Moses himself said. In Numbers chapter 11, we see this, this scene where God sees what's going on with Moses, he sees the, the challenge, the burden of leadership that, that Moses has. And God takes it upon himself to to tell Moses to appoint 70 elders, to appoint these men to aid, to assist in the task of leading the people of God. And, And as these men are appointed, as they are selected, they are put forth. And what we see happen to these men is that the Holy Spirit falls upon them. The Spirit of God is granted to them in order to lead the people of God along with Moses. And in Numbers 11, 26 through 29, we see this story of these two particular men and what Aaron says in light of what they do. We see in Numbers 11, 26 through 29, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What we see in this story, we see these two men who are, who are prophesying in the spirit of the Lord as they have been granted God's spirit for this task of leadership they've been given. And they are now prophesying a demonstration of the spirit of the Lord upon them. And Joshua, upon hearing this, is concerned. He's concerned for Moses' authority, for Moses' leadership. But there are other men that now are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Are you going to allow that? Are you going to allow them to engage in this? And what's Moses' response? He says, not only am I not going to stop it, I wish the Lord would pour his spirit upon all. I wish all were endowed with the spirit of God, were empowered, were filled. I mean, I can imagine why Moses would say this. He had a reason to say this for sure, because this non-spirit empowered people that he was dealing with were a very difficult people. In fact, just earlier in this chapter, in Numbers chapter 11, we see the people grumbling. We see them complaining. They're complaining because they are out wandering in the desert. They are wondering. And and why are they wondering? Well, because of their sin. But they're complaining. They're complaining saying, Man, remember the good old days when we were back in Egypt? You remember those fish that we were able to eat and they were all free? You remember the garlic we had? The food that we had there in, in Egypt? And then they made this amazing and horrible statement. All we have now is this manna to look at. They said, all we have now is this manna to look at. Do you remember what the manna was that the Israelites ate in the wilderness? It was literally magical food sent from God that appeared on the ground in the morning like the dew. It was God miraculously feeding them. It was a sign of God's providence and His care for them. And here they said, All we have to look at is this manna, the very evidence of God's care and love and provision for us. That's all we have to look at. You can imagine why Moses would be saying, I wish they were all filled with the Spirit, for these are a very difficult people. And what we see now is that this prayer, this wish, this hope that Moses had that eventually became a prophecy given by Joel has now become a reality for the church. The nature and the extent of the Holy Spirit's work has changed. For as we know, the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did not come into existence at Pentecost. But what did happen was that there was a change in the way the Holy Spirit worked and the way the Holy Spirit moved and in, in the extent to which he worked. That not only were there just certain elders, certain men, certain women who were given the Holy Spirit, who were filled with it for specific tasks, but that all who call on the name of the Lord are filled with the Spirit. What a privilege it is for us. What a joy it is for me as a pastor to know I am working with people who are filled with the same Spirit that is filling me, that filled Moses, that filled the prophets. It certainly makes sense. Mine and Robert and Aaron's task as your elders a lot easier to know that as we say things, the Holy Spirit is doing the work of convicting, of empowering, and of growing you and sanctifying you. The amazing thing that we see here is that Moses' prayer, his wish in the wilderness exile, and it essentially became the prophecy of Joel that was predicted to come. Here now in Acts, Peter explains that that has now become the reality. Moses' prayer has moved from a prayer to a prophecy to a reality. And that is what the crowds were witnessing here. This was not a drunken stupor. This was not a foolish display. It was a display of the prophecy of God fulfilled. Finally, point number three, the great and magnificent day. In verses 19 through 20, we see this. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. There is a lot of discussion around the idea of the last days. There's discussion on both sides. There are those who say, we are not now in the last days, but there is plenty more to come before we will be in the last days. There are those who say, uh, we are definitely in the last days, and Jesus is coming back on this specific date. And again, I think that's a great overreach. We do not know when Christ is coming back. And to uh, try and predict that, I think, is a exercise in futility, certainly. But what we do see in this passage, as, as Peter proclaims from the prophet Joel in verse 17, we see that the last days have come. That we live as believers, as those filled with the Holy Spirit in the last days. Now there's disagreement on whether or not the events described in verse 19 and 20 are to be interpreted literally, spiritually, whether they have already happened. Some argue that they happened at the time when Christ was crucified, when we saw these, these crazy wonders and signs and darkness and earthquakes and graves opening up and all these wild things happening then. And some argue that that's when it was fulfilled, while others argue it is something that we see uh, being represented in the world around us today, while others argue yet that it is all still to come. But we don't have to get into all of that, all the nitty-gritty, the ins and outs of, of all of the eschatological points that are there. Those are good and worthwhile discussions to have, but not necessary for us to have in order to see the importance of what, Pe- of what Peter is declaring by the prophet Joel, the great, And magnificent day of the Lord is coming. It is coming regardless of when it is coming, regardless of, of whether or not things have already started, whether or not they are still to come, whether things are spiritual or physical or literal. The day of the Lord is coming. And Peter's preaching, as all good preaching, sees this end and has it in mind in his preaching the great day of the Lord. For Christians, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns, will be a day of great rejoicing. It will be a a day of great joy, of satisfaction, of being united with Christ Himself, being embraced by Him and, and brought into heaven, into the very presence of God. But as John Calvin says, He points out that there will be those for whom the day of the Lord, that great and magnificent day, is neither great nor magnificent in any sort of good and joyful way. John Calvin says the day of Christ's coming will only be frightening if we have lived in contempt of God's grace. The point being that there are those who, when the day of the Lord comes, for them it will be nothing but gloom, nothing but fear. There will be no joy. There will be no satisfaction. For what they have displayed in their life and in their unbelief is contempt of God's grace. And this is where we cannot move any farther without a point on evangelism. This is the necessity of evangelism. And the evangelist, as much as the preacher needs to preach, needs to speak in light of this end of the great and magnificent day of the Lord, that there is coming a day. It may be in our lifetime. It may be not. But either way, it doesn't matter that that day is coming. And we must be prepared for that day. And how can we be prepared? Is it by getting our life in order? Is it by getting off drugs? Is it by living our life right and being upright and moral? Is it by reading a certain amount of God's word every day? Or by spending a certain number of hours in prayer each week? No. No. It's by trusting in Christ alone and relying on Him alone. As verse 21 declares, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ultimately, I think what we see from Peter's sermon teaches us about what right preaching looks like but I think it goes far beyond just what right preaching looks like and gives us insight on what Christians' lives ought to look like. Our lives ought to reflect the same qualities of Peter's preaching and of his sermon. We ought to be marked by a boldness out of a fearlessness to proclaim the gospel to the world that so desperately needs it. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, there's a lot of discussion in different circles about what this word everyone means. We see passages like this and we think, uh, what what, what does the word everyone mean? And I'm going to tell you, in this passage, I'm going to make it clear, I'm going to make it plain for you. The word everyone in this passage means everyone. There is not a single person who will call on the name of the Lord who will not be saved. Saved. If the Lord has pricked your heart and you feel the weight of your sin and you see the reality that you have no hope of saving yourself and that only by another person taking Christ, taking God's wrath for you, that you can be saved, and if you call out to Him for help, you will be saved. There is no exception to this. It is not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved except the person who practiced. This kind of sin, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, except for a person of this ethnicity. Every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the reality of the gospel. There is no exceptions here. And this is a message that is too good for us not to share. It's a message that the world so desperately needs, It is not a message ultimately of condemnation, but of hope. I once heard it said that if an atheist, or if a Jew, or if a Muslim can sit through your sermon and like it or agree with it, agree with what you've had to say, then you have not preached the gospel. You have preached poorly. And the reason for this is simple. The gospel is about Jesus Christ our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, and hope being found exclusively in Him. He is the Lord upon whose name all who call will be saved. And there is no other. We recognize that there is a flip side to this. That all who reject Christ, all who refuse, who fail to call on the name of the Lord, are suffering God's wrath at the end of time there is no hope outside of christ there is no other option there is one way of salvation as john says in john chapter 14 jesus himself says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and we as christians as preachers certainly But as Christians also have been given the responsibility, and not just given the responsibility, but empowered for the task of declaring this good news to the world around us. Let us not fail in that responsibility. Let us not waste the empowering that God has given us for this task. But church family, let us pray for boldness to do so. As a preacher, it is is my hope, it is my prayer that that I would practice these qualities that that James Boyce presented at the beginning of of this, that my preaching would would reflect a Christocentric sermon, that it would be fearless, that it would be reasonable. But church family, it is also my prayer that we as Christians and our lives would reflect those very same qualities, that our lives would be Christocentric, they would be centered around the person and work of Christ, that our lives would be lived fearless, willing to do whatever it takes and go as far as we need to go in order to to proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs it but so desperately doesn't want to hear it. And that we would live in a way that is reasonable, not seeking to to work people's emotions and and manipulate them into some sort of state of, of hope, but to reason with them about the gospel, about their sin, about their guilt, and about the hope and new life available in Christ Jesus. All of these things ought to mark our lives as Christians and our preaching as preachers. We ought to emphasize the gospel to the world around us.